Good morning, North Wake. As Sam already mentioned, I was on sabbatical. Daniel mentioned the same. Um, and I just want to start this morning with a very heartfelt thank you to each and every one of you for making that possible for all of our staff, but in particular for me. Uh, it was a great season of life for me to take the time off uh, this summer. Um, me and my wife celebrated our 19-year anniversary, which is a pretty big deal for us. Um, my son, Hunter, graduated high school and subsequently enlisted into the Air Force. Um, my daughter uh, started driving full-time. I don't know which one's scarier, Hunter going into the Air Force or my daughter driving. I think they're equally as frightening for me. And um, my grandmother, who I was really close to, we lived side by side from one another for the first nine years of my life. Uh, she passed away, and I was able to go and spend extended time with her and my family to be there with her during her last days. And all of that was made possible by the sabbatical that you as a church grants us as pastors. Uh, it means an awful, awful lot to us to get that every so often where we get to spend extended time with our family and we get to spend extended time with God where we're not having to prepare a sermon or a lesson. Um, so just hear me. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. So as Sam says, I do need much prayer. So I'm going to pray one more time for today's message. So pray with me. Father, we cry out to you now because we are a very needy people. We're not deserving. We are needy. And we desperately desire to meet with you this morning as we read and study your word. Father, we want to commune with you. For we know that you are the only one who satisfies our hungers and our thirst. And we know that it is in your presence that is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand we find pleasures forevermore. So meet with us now and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As you know, our, our church is a church that has a lot of children. Okay, This morning we'll probably have over 200 children in our ministry. And parents seem to keep popping them out. I look down here as a little one. Uh, if you're a newlywed and you're just trying to enjoy that time with you and your spouse before kids come, stay away from whatever drinks they serve in the lobby. I think they infuse them with some type of fertility drug. Um, but we are a church that's blessed with children. And one of the things I love to do when I find out one of my friends has conceived and they're having a child, when they find out the gender, is to find out what are they going to name their baby. You know, people seem to be more sophisticated and thoughtful these days in how they pick out the names for their children than Shelly and I were. Hunter, my, my son, was named because it sounded outdoorsy. And Brooklyn, her, she was named after a little girl on General Hospital. So my kids were named because I'm a redneck and my wife used to watch soap operas. Now my wife has ceased to watch soap operas, but I can't seem to shake the redneck out of me. But you know, parents do give a lot of thought into what they name their child. And the meaning behind the name is sometimes one of the, part of the decision-making process. Some of our friends have recently conceived and found out they're having a little girl. And upon finding this out, I did what I do. I say, hey, what are you going to name her? And they say, Mariah. And I'm like, oh, 
Like after Mariah Carey, you guys must really like her music. And they stopped me and says, no, Moriah, M-O-R-I-A-H. Two things about that situation. One is if the first thing that pops into your mind when you think you hear the name Mariah is Mariah Carey's song, Dream Lover, and you're, and you're a man, you might need your man car taken away from you. And secondly, if someone has to spell a word that you try to pronounce, you might be a redneck. So I told you I couldn't shake the redneck in me. But no, they went on to tell me that they had given some thought about what they were going to name their daughter. And Mariah has meaning for them and their family in the season of life by which she was conceived. And they went on to tell me that Mariah has two meanings, which is important for them. First, Mariah means the Lord will provide. And secondly, God is my teacher. They told me that God is using this little girl to teach them to look upon him for provision and that his provision is perfect. She also is a reminder to them to trust in their wise and loving teacher. So they picked this name because of its meaning. You know, studying uh, the meaning of names can be interesting, especially as a parent. But as we'll see today, Luke, the author of Acts, and Peter and John, the apostles of Jesus, and the Jewish leaders of the day are concerned about names as well. Actually, they are concerned about a particular name. And so it begs the question, why? Why is this name so important to them? If you will, turn back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, and we'll begin looking to answer this question. Larry preached last week in Acts chapter 3, and so by way of summary, Peter and John are on their way to a prayer meeting where they are intercepted on their way into the temple. A lame beggar who was sitting by the entrance asked them for some cash, which neither one of them had. But without missing a beat, Peter tells them, I don't have any cash, but what I do have, I give to you. So what is it that Peter has? Pick back up with me in your Bibles in the last half of Acts 3, verse 6. We read, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So here is what Peter gives this beggar instead of money. Peter gives him the name of Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 16. It reads, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Through Peter's faith in the name of Jesus, this beggar is healed. And we also read that the people are astounded. They are in wonder and amazement. And so when Peter sees this, he immediately seizes the opportunity provided by the situation and shares the gospel with this newly captivated audience. So how do the people respond to the excitement and his gospel message? Turn to our text today in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many people of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the commotion that had resulted from this healing and the subsequent sermon has caught the attention of the temple police, priests, and other religious leaders. Their orderly, quiet prayer meeting had gotten out of hand. But according to verse 2, they were not only annoyed by the disorder, but they were annoyed by the message. Peter and John are arrested and placed into custody for proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So because it's late in the day, the religious leaders decided to put them in custody and have a hearing for the next morning. Look what happens while Peter and John are being booked, if you will. Verse 4 tells us that many, many people who heard the word of Peter, that heard the gospel that day, believed. In fact, we know that the number of believing men were increased to 5,000. So if you take into account Acts chapter 2, approximately 2,000 men came to faith that day. You know, sometimes we read these passages and the magnitude doesn't hit us. Just for a moment, look around the room. Look at the seats. There's a lot more empty than there were in the first service, but this auditorium seats about 500. Okay? So imagine it completely packed and then multiply that times four. That's how many men came to faith that particular prayer meeting. You know, I was thinking about this. We had a prayer meeting last Sunday, okay? What would Rob Craig do if 2,000 people came to faith at, at that prayer meeting, okay? I guarantee you he would be excited. His stats would increase. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, there would be, need to be a lot more food at the next baptism service, okay? This is an astounding event, And this is what happens when Jesus is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. People's lives are radically changed. Let's pick back up in verse 5 of our text. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were who of the high priestly family... And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So who are these people? These people basically made up the Sanhedrin. It's basically the Senate or Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. And the high priest presided over it by virtue of his office with 70 other members. And a couple of these names ought to sound familiar to you. You see, Annas was the former high priest who had interrogated Jesus before he was examined by the Sanhedrin in John chapter 18. And Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas and current high priest during Jesus' arrest and trial. He was actually the one who tore his robe and charged Jesus with blasphemy in Matthew 26. And I mention this to highlight to you the fact that these were some of the same men who had tried to stop this movement, who had tried to stop the name of Jesus and his following. 
And obviously their attempts had failed because here they were once again because of the name of Jesus. And their interrogation begins by asking them how they were able to heal the man. By what name did they do this? And then again, we're confronted with this significance of a name. You know, I was in, when I was in the stages of transitioning from boyhood to manhood, my, my dad gave me a plaque. This plaque hangs on my office wall. I know you can't read it from where you're sitting, but let me read it for you. It says Mason, which is our family surname. Mason, you got it from your father. It was all he had to give. So it's yours to use and cherish for as long as you may live. If you lost the watch he gave you, it can always be replaced. But a black mark on your name can never be erased. It was clean the day you took it and worthy name to bear. When he got it from his father, there was no dishonor there. So make sure you guard it wisely after all is said and done. You'll be glad the name is spotless when you give it to your son. This plaque means a lot to me for the season of life that my dad gave it to me. And it's important because it stands out the character of the men who hold this name and how a man's character can be associated with his name. You see, my dad's side of the family, the Masons are known to be men of integrity, men of honesty. Their handshake is actually more valuable than a written legal document. So the name has significance because of the character of the men for generations who have held it. There's nothing magical in the name. Just because you're born and you're named Mason, it doesn't make you an honest man. But it was the men who have carried that name for generations prior to me that has the significance. And so my dad wanted me to understand that every decision I made as a man would be a reflection on the Mason name before the name reflects a person or family's character. I think this helps us move a little bit closer to what we're after today in this name, but I don't think we're fully there yet. There's more to this name than character alone. It's not less than that, but definitely more. So let's dig back into our text in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. You know, Jesus had prepared his disciples for just this moment. If you look back in Matthew 10, verses 17 through 19, Jesus was telling his disciples, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So you get a sense. Here is Jesus' fulfillment of that promise in Matthew. And you see the result in Peter. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And it leads to this bold, 
bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. You, Peter just can't contain himself. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He empowers a person's witness. That is what he does for Peter here in today's passage. And that is what he will do for us. Do you guys know what our current focus or theme is for North Wake this year? Last year was drawing near to the good and mighty king. Well, the rest of this year in the first half of 2015, this is our focus. It goes right along with what's going on here. It is to embrace the Spirit's empowerment to share the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection more boldly. Let me read that one more time. To embrace the Spirit's empowerment to share the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection more boldly. So our bumper sticker comes on all of our slides that reads, The Spirit enacts God's presence in us for the world. You see, we desire the same Holy Spirit in Acts to empower us so that we will represent Him to a lost world. And so as we embrace the Holy Spirit, we will share our faith more boldly. So church... How are you doing at that? Are you embracing the Holy Spirit's empowering? Is He enabling you to share the gospel more boldly? Who are you currently praying for an opportunity to share with because you believe that the Holy Spirit will help? Let us continue to allow and pray for the Holy Spirit to embolden us as we share His name with others. So back to our main question today. What is so important about this name? You know, five times in our passage today and 33 times in the book of Acts, the name of Jesus is mentioned as of utmost importance. I want to highlight a few of these that surround our passage this morning. Acts 2.21 reads, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, in Acts 3, verse 6 and 16. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And in 16, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. In the next chapter, in Acts 5, we read that they left again the presence of the council, and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And the name here is significant because it identifies the person. You know, in today, in our modern society, we use full names. First, middle, last. We even use social security numbers and addresses to identify a particular person. But middle and last names were nonsensical in the Jewish context. And to embarrass myself just a little bit for a moment, when I was a new believer and uh, had not been discipled very well, for years I thought that Christ was Jesus' last name. I thought it was like Mr. Jesus Christ, like Mr. Jake Mason. But that's not what's going on here. 
Christ is not Jesus' last name. It identifies and indicates who he is. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. So here is Peter, overwhelmed for the opportunity to stand before these religious leaders and proclaim to them who the Messiah is. Verse 10, where Peter is providing the answer to the significance of the name, he is saying that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah of Nazareth. It's it's the clear identification of the Savior that Peter is after. He, He can't contain himself, like I've mentioned already. Jesus is the foretold seed in Genesis 3.15 who would deal a death blow to Satan. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham in Genesis 15 and 22 who would bless all the nations of the earth. Jesus is the seed of David in 2 Samuel 7 whose kingdom would last forever. Jesus is the suffering servant predicted in Isaiah 53. Peter is proclaiming to all that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Ever since sin had entered the world at the beginning of the creation, when creation was good and man sinned in the Garden of Eden, humanity had been under a curse, under God's wrath. And not just because Adam sinned, because everyone since then has sinned on their own accord. But God had promised from the very beginning to send a Savior, a Messiah who would remove that curse by taking the wrath upon himself for all those, all those who would place their faith and trust in him alone for salvation. Since the moment of history, God's people have waited in anticipation for this Messiah. And Peter is saying that the anticipated Messiah is Jesus That's why he was so concerned about the name. That's why he was so concerned about getting the identity right. The name of the Messiah is Jesus. Peter doesn't stop there. He reminds them that they were the ones who had killed him. They had crucified the Messiah. It was under their leadership and actions that the anointed one was killed. There was no other name to look for. It was him. But he didn't stay dead. They had killed him, but God had raised him from the dead. No matter what they were teaching or what they believed, Jesus was alive and well, and it was in his name, it was by his power that this man stood before them healed. To drive this point home, Peter quotes from Psalm 118.22. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is one of the oldest messianic testimonies. And just like a a builders will look at stones and keep the ones that are good and discard the ones that are unsuitable, they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They had rejected him as a cornerstone. But God, the chief architect, took what they had discarded as worthless and what they had attempted to destroy, and he made it the chief cornerstone, the most important part of the entire building. You see, they had made a terrible error. But Peter, he doesn't stop. He closes out his response with a clear, another clear and bold statement in verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no other, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by whom we must be saved. You know, before Shelly and I moved here to North Carolina to go to seminary. We sold our house a little too quick. 
And so a dear couple in our church invited us to come stay with them. They had been our Sunday school teacher for the past couple years. And so we got to live with this sweet, sweet couple. But before I came to seminary, I remember a conversation with Mr. Doug. He said, Jake, I want you to find out something for me when you go to seminary. I said, what's that, Mr. Doug? He said, I want you to find out what happens to all those people who never hear the name Jesus. Kind of one of those what about questions that Larry mentions occasionally. I think it's worthy for us to think about that here because Peter's making bold claims. What about those faithful Hindus or Buddhists? What about devout Muslims who just call God by the Arabic name for God, Allah? What about Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on your door and they read and study out of the same 66 books of the Bible that we do? Well, Peter's implications of the identity of Jesus are pointed and plain. Peter is saying that apart from Jesus, apart from his name, there is no salvation. We need to really let that resonate in our pluralistic tolerance is the highest virtue, politically correct society. There is one way to God and it is through the name and person of his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is why this name is such a big deal. You know, Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Romans 10, verses 9 through 13, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John Piper helpfully writes here in commenting on this passage. He says, The point of saying there is no other name is that we are saved by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. His name is our entrance into fellowship with God. The way of salvation by faith is a way that brings glory to the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is the focus of faith and repentance. In order to believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you must believe on his name. That is, you must have heard of him and know who he is as a particular man who did a particular saving work and rose from the dead. There's salvation in no one else, and that means that there must be missionaries who make him known by name so that people can believe and call on his name for salvation. You know, we are blessed as a church and to have so many missionaries on the field. And this is why North Wake has 38 missionary families, I believe, at this time in over 15 countries for the purpose of making Jesus' name known. We want to make sure that everyone knows the name of the one and true Savior. Guys, these aren't arrogant claims. These are loving claims. The most loving thing we can do when we engage with folks of different backgrounds is to proclaim the one Savior, the one Messiah, Jesus Christ. So going back to the question about devout Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, what have you. Being devout doesn't save 
a person. Faith in the name and person of Jesus alone is the means of salvation. Peter was clear, and we must be clear. You know, one of the things that I do when I'm engaging in someone from another religion about their beliefs is I ask them who they say Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? It really gets to the heart of the question. It removes all the things that you can get distracted by. Who is Jesus? And the Muslims will say that he was a good prophet, but not God. The Jehovah's Witnesses will say that he is a God, little g, but not the God, big G. If you really dig deeper, they would actually say that Jesus is the Archangel Michael's life force in bodily form. That's not the same Jesus that we worship. You see, at the end of the day, what people do with Jesus tells everything. This is why his name, this is why his identity is so important. And this is why Peter is so adamant about this. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they realized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You know, for a moment you get the picture that the courtroom is quiet. Peter has stunned them. Stunned a room full of theologians, which is a pretty heavy task to do. But it's amazing if you turn back to John chapter 7. I'll just read it to you. They had a similar reaction to Jesus. It says, They marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The leaders are being able to make the connection that these men had been with Jesus and Jesus had obviously rubbed off on them. You see, these were not seminary-trained men. These were two blue-collar fishermen that had just spent a lot of time with Jesus. And the fact that this healed beggar was standing in front of their very eyes gave them really no options. It was obvious that something supernatural has taken place and everyone was aware of it so they couldn't cover it up. So they had the bailiff escort the men out and they had a discussion. They got in a huddle. They conferred with one another. And they agreed that their main goal was to stop the spread of Jesus' name. So they reconvened and basically told the disciples, Hey, we understand that a man's been healed. Okay? We can't deny that. But we order you not to speak or teach in this name. We order you to not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Amen. I love the response of Peter and John. Look in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So Peter and John respond with this sly comment. You tell me whether I should listen to man or listen to God. Their response is obvious as their intentions are. They intend to continue to share Jesus and his name with every person they come in contact with. They're not sharing the name because someone's going to ask them that week in accountability. They're not sharing because they have five witness encounters to write up for seminary. They're not sharing because of some legalistic checkbox that they have to complete so they're right with God. No, these men are sharing because they can't help it. They can't help but speak in the name of Jesus. Look at what the text says. We can't help it. We can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is the most important event in these men's lives. It's the most important event in human history. They have identified the Messiah. How could they not speak of him? You know, we could learn a lot from evangelism from this text. What if we stopped viewing evangelism as something we do? And started viewing it as something that we can't help but do. Something we can't help but speak of. Look at the simplicity of Peter and John's evangelism model, if you will. If you think of it in relationship to a legal system, what, what do witnesses do? Witnesses are called to get on the stand to share simply what they have seen and heard. They're different from lawyers. They don't have prepackaged arguments that address every possible angle. They simply are called to share what they have seen and heard. Church, do you think you could do that? Do you think you could share what God is doing in your life? Can you talk with a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member about what you have heard about Jesus? Can you tell them about what you have read about him in the Bible? Again, Peter and John were just two blue-collar fishermen who had spent time with Jesus. They couldn't help but speak about what they had seen and heard. I think we can do the same. I think we can do the same. Well, the religious leaders didn't really appreciate their response. So they said, hey, I got it. We'll just tell them the same thing one more time. So they tell them one more time. They threaten them one more time to not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The leaders, you can see, are really have fear of the backlash that they would get from the people. The, the people and the crowds, them knowing about this, them simply knowing about this, and their response had neutered their power. For our passage tells us that all, of, all were praising God. It's important to note, too, that they're not praising Peter. They're not praising John. They were praising God. For what had happened. Peter had been so adamant and repeatedly communicated that it was the name of Jesus, faith in the name of Jesus, that this 40 plus year old beggar was healed. And so the glory belonged to God and God alone. In conclusion to our passage this morning, the name is important to Luke and Peter. 
because of who it identified. It identified the person. It's not simply because the name in itself has meaning like parents do and sometimes in picking out the name of their kids. It's not important simply because a name can represent a particular character quality like Mason. This name was important because it identified the person who has the power to heal and the power to save and whose name must be proclaimed. The name identified Jesus Christ as the Messiah. What I've hopefully clearly communicated and what Luke is trying to communicate with us and what the inerrant inspired word of God is communicating to us is that the person named Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah who was killed for our sin and raised to sit at the right hand of the Father. And he has the ability to heal more than just lameness. He has the ability to heal your soul. He is willing and able to save you from any and all sin, no matter how ugly or evil, if you will cry out to him and beg him to change your life. As you cry out to him as the only Lord and Savior. In his name, the disciples healed a 40-year-old man from lameness. In his name, 2,000 men came to salvation that day. In his name and no other name, men and women can be saved. That is the name that Peter proclaimed. That is the name I proclaim today. And this is the name as we as his followers cannot help but proclaim. You cannot help but speak of. It is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Today's passage can be really summarized by three main points on the slide behind me. Jesus' name has the power to heal. Jesus' name is the only one that saves. And Jesus' name must be proclaimed. Before I pray and as Daniel and the praise team come up, I want to let these three main points guide you in your response today. You see, some of you may want to come down and pray to Jesus to heal you. Some of you may want to come down and pray in Jesus Christ's name that he would become your Lord and Savior for the first time. You're not going to depend on anything else but him for your salvation. And thirdly, some of you may want to come down and seek him so that he will give you boldness and empower you through the Holy Spirit to proclaim his name more confidently and more boldly. There'll be leaders and pastors down front if you want them to pray with you. But I would encourage you to respond today to the text the way God is leading you. And so let me pray in that regard now.